All right. Trust our hearts are prepared through corporate worship, especially via singing. So now let's uh, go to the Lord in the word of prayer and uh, ask for his help and wisdom as we explore his scriptures together. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you so much for your love and goodness to us. Your mercies are new every morning, and what a morning to gather together as your church, as your people, to enjoy worship, to recall the truth that has been passed on to us, to hear the reading of the the Word of God out loud, to meditate on it, to fix our eyes on you, and to hopefully in awe and humility to witness the work that it does that it does for us and does in us, transforming us into the likeness of Christ. That is what your word does. Lord, we are powerless to accomplish this. It is your spirit that does it. And so even now we ask you, Lord, for your grace, that your Holy Spirit would give us wisdom to understand the word, to understand how to apply it, that we would be faithful stewards of your gospel. May he point us to Christ, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, go ahead and open your Bibles. Your Bibles with me. To the Gospel of John. Had a brief interlude last Lord's Day to discuss some current goings-on in our own society and how as a church we can be uh, effective when those things are going on, how we can be faithful to the Word of God. Uh, The previous Lord's Day before that, we did some exploring in the Gospel of John, and one of the reasons we uh, wanted to go to a book like this, if only for a couple of Sundays, was to encourage our hearts to have a, once again, a refreshed view of who Jesus is and what God has given us in Christ. We talk about uh, New Year's and things like that and having opportunities to, to refocus, fix our gaze on those things that matter the most in the Christian life. And of course, above all, it is the person and work of Christ. It's Him we serve, it's Him we worship, and it's Him we seek to glorify. And one of the wonders that comes out of this is the fact that He took on human flesh to dwell among us, and what a precious portion of Scripture this is to remind us once again that God dwells among us. Again, if we're going to again refresh our hearts and refocus our desire on being effective witnesses of the gospel, of being faithful to the Word of God, of serving Christ well, of loving one another, well, we have to go back to first things, don't we? And one of the things we go back to is the fact that Christ dwells with us, dwells with His people, and has given us the supreme revelation of the Father. He reveals God to us. So we kind of came right in the middle of that passage. So uh, direct your attention to John chapter 1, verse 14. We will read through verse 18. Please follow along. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. So the simple title of this message, going back a couple weeks ago, is simply called, And the Word Became Flesh. Of course, a subtitle would be something along the lines of, What God Has Revealed to Us in His Son. And so we're talking about revelation, right? We are talking about the revelation of the Son of God, right? We call a second member of the Trinity taking on human flesh, dwelling among men, and accomplishing everything that the Father sent for Him to do. And so in that, we find an immense gift from a gracious God, that He has revealed Himself in His Son. And one of the things we want to do with this text is simply see that in four ways. Four different ways in which God has revealed Himself in Christ. We got through two of those last Lord's Day. We want to quickly go through that and review them just so we have sort of a pattern developed. So how has God revealed Himself in Christ? First of all is this, is that God has given us a personal revelation of Himself. A personal revelation of Himself. What do we mean by that? Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what we say as a personal revelation is that personal, like literally, personally, in human flesh, God stepped into time and space in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and dwelt among His people. It was a revelation more up close and personal than any that had gone before it. And we find the grace of God immensely demonstrated by the fact that a holy God would come in person and tabernacle among men to make His home among men in human flesh. And John remarks how, he, how we saw the glory, right? A personal testimony. We saw the glory. We saw Him present with us. That's the first one. Personal revelation. Secondly, it is a powerful revelation. One that is powerful in the sense of profound. One that is life-changing. And going on in this passage, that'd be the second part of verse 14, where John says we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there is something that John witnessed in a particularly powerful fashion, is that they saw the glory of the one and only Son. That is, the unique Son, right? The Son that is not so much not pointing to the fact that He is the only one, but that He is unique, that He is exemplary. As James White says, He is the incomparable One from the Father. And not just that, but full of grace and truth, right? God has always been gracious. God has always told the truth. He is the very standard of it. But it is seen, that grace and truth, most fully, most profoundly, most powerfully in the person of this incomparable Christ. And so John the Apostle would not have us miss that. That is his testimony regarding the incarnation of what he calls the Word 
of God. The living Word of God. The Logos who reveals the Father to us. So we got through that first verse. And now we come to a couple more which will cover uh, the bulk of 15 through 18. So let's look at verse 15. It says this, John testified about him, that is Jesus, and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes before me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So I call this a prophetic revelation. It is not merely personal and powerful, but it is a revelation that is spoken forth. It is a revelation that is proclaimed clearly and loudly and without apology. This is this John, of course, that is in question here, John. We have the Apostle John who's writing this, but he's writing about the testimony of John the Reformed Baptist. So here is John giving testimony as to who Jesus is. Now note what John says. And not only that, but note how he says it. I think sometimes we gloss over a passage like this. Look at, how, look, look at John's priorities. Because it is our priority. We also speak a prophetic word. When we proclaim Christ, we speak it forth. We are forth-tellers. We make Christ known through the word of the Gospel. So John here is testifying. Some have called this an explanatory interlude. John the Baptist's testimony regarding Christ. This is He. Right? This, is, this is the One. And this is His witness. Look at what John does here. He says, cried out saying, this was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me. This note, this explanatory note is put in the present. And I think that's pretty profound because it tells us that this proclamation is still going forth, right? The Word of Christ never dies or it has never expired. It has never become passe. It is a living, present proclamation that goes forth and is the responsibility and joy of every Christian. And note how clear it is. This was He. He is speaking of Jesus. Jesus Himself, not getting sidetracked by other, by other topics of the day. His priority is clear to speak Christ. Pay heed to this passion of John. As Matthew Poole said regarding John, nor did He give an obscure or cold testimony, but an open, plain, and fervent testimony according to the prophecies. His testimony was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. What an example for us. When we think about how Christ is proclaimed these days among certain circles, there is, there is a tragic obscurity to it. Where you, you, if you're listening to a person and they're, sort, they're, they're still holding the veil over the uniqueness of the gospel, and you keep thinking, say it, just say it. Testify of Christ that He is the only one, that He is the only Lord and Savior. Do away with this obscurity and this cold testimony. May the testimony be hot and may it be clear and fervent, as Matthew Poole suggests. And note, according to the prophecies. See, John didn't conjure this up. He knew this because of the prophecies foretold. His source was the Word of God spoken, and He is the One, the voice of that One, as Isaiah says, crying in the wilderness. And he points to Christ. May this be our testimony, friends. 
May, may Christ be the one to whom we are constantly pointing, constantly leading people to. I think about this in the sense of old creation versus new creation and how, and how clear John's pointing out of Christ is. Similar to a scene back in, uh, back in Genesis, back in the first creation, the old creation. In Genesis 2, the very end of it, God brings Eve to Adam to introduce, remember he put Adam in a deep sleep, yanked a rib from him, and then fashioned, fashioned the woman, fashioned his helpmate. So he brings Adam, his new companion, Eve. Now note, note this, men, note this. This is the first time where a man speaks in the Bible, and it's poetry. Just file that in the back of your head. He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. But look at Adam's first words. This one, this one here, this now. There is a special identification. There is something in the words of Adam which really sanctify Eve from, from the rest of creation. She belongs to him. She is one to be one with him. They are to be one flesh, to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth. This one right here. Right? Not lions, not tigers, not bears, not whales, not eagles. Not those, this one, right? A specific identification. See, that's the creation of man and woman, the image bearers of God, the crowning moment of creation before sin entered the world. And so now here, thousands of years later, the crown of the new creation is identified. This one, this is the one I spoke of. This is the one of whom I said. There is an in that, a lesson for us as to how we treat Christ when we proclaim Him. Do we identify Him faithfully as the one who is incomparable, the one who is unique, the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth? Or do we muddle it with other inferior things? May we point to the crown of the new creation, the one who started it all. Note also the substance, John's prophetic word of Christ, reading on. He who comes after me, verse 15, has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So there's some interesting words here. But he says, he who comes after me, simply pointing out the fact that, one, John the Baptist was born before Jesus okay, by several months. So in that sense, in, in, the, in the physical world, in terms of birth, he was there before Jesus. We also know that John was the forerunner of Christ. He started his preaching ministry before Jesus did. He was tasked with announcing when the Lord Jesus Christ would come. That's why when Jesus arrives on the scene later on in this chapter, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? Jesus must increase. I must decrease. So ultimately, John's ministry would fade into Christ because the Lamb was here. But notice... John's humility, even though I was born before him, he has a higher rank than I. He is superior to me, he is saying. He is above me because he existed before me. So there are two things here in particular that John emphasizes regarding his prophetic message of Christ. One is his deity, the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God in the flesh, right? 
Later on, Jesus says, unless you believe I am, you, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that Jesus is God, you are believing in the wrong Jesus. You are believing in the Jesus that cannot save. So when you proclaim him, proclaim him as God, a very God. And one thing, another thing that follows shortly on its heels is this, is, is Christ's preeminence, right? He, was, he ranks above me. He has a higher rank than I. He is superior. When you preach the gospel to someone, even when you're just talking, even to another brother or sister in Christ about Jesus, is there the presence of Christ's preeminence, right? Of his superiority, of his, of his supreme place in your life and in the life of the church, right? Does he take precedence over everything? And we all know there's challenges. That's what sanctification is about. Sanctification, one way of understanding it, is seeing the gradual taking of preeminence by Christ, that in every area of life, he may be first place. That's what Paul says. He, he, he should come to have first place in everything. In the book of Colossians, Christ is called the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, right? The prototokos, the one who is preeminent over all creation, whether visible or invisible, right? Thrones, dominions, powers, all of that, Christ is Lord over all all and we proclaim that for he existed john says before me where did john get this from submit to you micah 5 2 but as for you bethlehem ephrathah too little to be among the clans of judah from you one will go forth for me to be the ruler in israel his going goings forth are from long ago from the days of eternity he is talking, Micah is, about the Messiah. And John knows that truth, that this is, this is the one. This is the, the Lord Christ who will be ruler in Israel, who existed before me. So I'd say and when it comes to the, this prophetic presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ, are we proclaiming Him as Lord and God and as the one who is preeminent above all things? Another way to think about it is, if you are proclaiming Jesus as King, are you proclaiming Him as King of Kings? If you are proclaiming Him as Lord, are you proclaiming Him as Lord of Lords? The one who stands uniquely and incomparably above everything and everyone else. See, Jesus confirms this Himself, His deity, and later on in this, in this Gospel, in John 8, 58, He says, before Abraham was, I am. Right? Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. He was there. He was there when Abraham was. And he still is. He existed before us, and he must be exalted above us. That is the message of the prophetic word that John brings to bear here before Israel. He has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And then it goes on. For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. I mean, what, what, an encouraging, what an encouraging verse. For of His fullness we have received, we have all received, and grace upon grace. So when we talk about fullness, here is the fourth thing, is that God in Christ has given us a perfect revelation of Himself. When it comes to revealing God, there is nothing lacking 
in Christ. He reveals the Father perfectly and completely to us. What we need, all we need to know about the Father is found and learned in Jesus Christ. And the first thing we see about that is His fullness. His fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. Don't miss that. This is a gift. We have received His fullness. Isn't that amazing how so many of us want to put limitations on the presence of God in our own lives? We just talked about the presence of God in preaching, the presence, the preeminence of Christ in preaching. What about our own lives? See, this here doesn't leave us much room to, to, put, to try to put limitations on God's presence and power in our own lives. No, we have received His fullness as a gift of grace. Colossians 2.9 explains this. In Him dwells the fullness of deity in bodily form. See, He brings us to God. He brings us near God to do life and to enjoy His presence. There's nothing wanting, nothing missing or lacking. You cannot look at Christ in any, in any way and say, there, there's something wrong here, there is something defective, or there is something inadequate. We could add something here or there, and yet that's what happens when you step outside the Gospel, is it not? It's always Christ plus something. We always find in Christ, when we deviate from the Gospel, something that is lacking, that we need to add to. And John assures us here that's, that's precisely not the case. We have received His fullness. And I think what that means, practically for the Christian life, is that whatever God had to give us, He gave us all of it in the person of Jesus. Everything that we need. And of course, we understand that we are inadequate in ourselves, in and of ourselves, right? Every failure, every time we sin, we're not meant to despair, but to refresh our hearts and hope by saying, we have the fullness that God has, in, through His Son, given me of Himself. And so God, by Himself, has given us of His abundant grace and His abundant resources. You know, we've been in 1 Peter for the last several weeks going through a verse-by-verse study, and one thing we, we see that's clear is, is the building blocks of this, and that God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He has not held back when it comes to what we need to walk in grace and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. So look at this next part. Of His fullness we have received. Because these, these walk hand in hand. He says, and grace upon grace. See, to receive the fullness in Christ is to receive Grace upon grace. That is, that is the first thing that is evident to us. If you have received Christ, you have received not just grace, but as John characterizes here, grace upon grace. What are we to make of this? Right. It's a timely reminder to never minimize the, the power of grace in your life. Because He has given the fullness of that. Grace upon grace. Just think about grace piled on top of grace in ever-abundant measure. Something that is constantly self-replenishing. Have you ever gone hiking? If you live in Colorado and you haven't gone hiking, repent and go hiking. But if you've ever gone hiking, you come to a river, right? A river of cool, running water. You notice that the water that runs by you doesn't run by you again. It kind of goes down. But then what, what happens? There's new water. And it keeps coming. Like, where, where is this water coming from? It's always, it seems to be always self-replenishing. 
At some point, you'll run into a fountain from which the water springs, and that's, and that's the source. But from your point of view in the river, the water just keeps coming, and it's always new, clear, fresh, refreshing water. That is what grace is like. You know what you never do when you go into the wilderness? Is drink standing water. You, I mean, you never know what kind of wee beasties are in that kind of water. It's not gonna, it might refresh you for a time, but then you'll, you might get a stomachache. You'll, you'll make yourself sick. It's old water. Bugs are in it. It's, it's infested. It's probably not even cool. And I hope that we don't treat grace like that. Because grace is never that. Grace is never simply standing around. It doesn't get tepid or, 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 or dank or stale. Grace is not going to make you sick, right? Grace is always running. It is always doing its work. It is always giving in abundance. It is always refreshing and always perfecting. It's something you should never tire of. I think that's the point of grace. Especially when we start looking to our own works, our own wisdom, our strength. We treat grace like standing water. We should never tire of it. That's something that really sets the Christian apart. I think some, sometimes... It's that one thing that the unbeliever does not get, this, this free gift of favor and mercy. Everything we need, this gift of grace, without any merit or earning it of our, on our own, God just gives it to us because He delights in giving it to us. I was thinking about, uh, I think this was 2019, Katie and I were able to go to the, uh, the Air Force graduation, if you remember that, um, at the academy, uh, Donald Trump was the guest speaker, and he kept talking about, you know, all the funding the Air Force was going to get, and the beautiful planes, right, the beautiful planes they were going to be able to fly, and then he started talking about winning, right, and they were going to win so much, but they were just going to get sick of winning, right, but then he said, except you're not, <laughs> That's how grace is. That's how we should relate to grace. It's like, there's so much grace here. We're just going to get tired of all this grace, except we're not. Because the more grace we receive, the more grace uh, empowers the Christian life, the more we enjoy it, the more that we desire of it. That's what it means to have grace upon grace. Right? It's always in fresh supply, always in, an, in abundant supply. And don't be ashamed of it. Right? That is... That is a great privilege in the Christian life. And I know there's a lot, of, a lot of talk about privilege, right? But we, above all people, as believers in Jesus, are privileged with grace. So don't be ashamed of that privilege. Use it for God's glory and to advance the kingdom of His Son. Be purveyors of grace. Be preachers of grace. And point others to it, that it is all a gift of God. But the one thing to not do is get tired of grace. Grace is that very thing which keeps us from spiritual exhaustion and from relying on ourselves and from repudiating the goodness of God. It is grace that helps us stand. It is grace that helps us rely on God. It is grace that helps us live. Grace is everything. Think about grace. What else does the Bible say about grace? Because this is grace upon grace. This is serious stuff. Well, in Romans 5, we read this. Talk about this grace, this access of grace into which we now stand. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. 
right? That's grace. It's grace that we are standing in, right? We're surrounded by it. That is, that is the sphere of the Christian life. We're never outside of the grace of God. If we are truly His, he is, His provision and goodness are constantly there, right? We grow in it. We are saved by it. We're sustained by it. It's just piled on as if God had nothing to hold back from us, and so He didn't. He gave us grace. Again, even the most difficult times. Many of us face trials. Grace isn't something that makes us naive, right? It's not something that draws away our clarity as to what God is doing in this world. It doesn't make us careless. But we do understand that we as Christians face difficult times. We do face trials. We face those seasons in life where our faith is being refined. And when our faith is being refined, what are we supposed to see more clearly? Grace. And there are times, I go through them myself, where we, we, we just, things happen, and, and two words out of our mouth are, that figures, right? That figures. Do not forget, at that time, to figure in grace. Give me, let me give you an example from Scripture. Jeremiah, right? Prophet Jeremiah, writes, you know, speaks forth his prophecy, it's written down, the warnings on Jerusalem, you don't repent, you know, repent or die, the city's going to get sacked. Well, they don't repent, and so the city is sacked by the Chaldeans. And then we have this book called Lamentations, the aftermath, where, where Jeremiah beholds the city in ruin. Right? He's lamenting, he's crying over it. The beloved city where God dwelt with his people is in shambles. And yet he could still say in chapter 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, even even the most ardently faithful Jew, if they were around Jerusalem at that time or had been carried away in captivity and heard what happened, may have a hard time confessing this. Wait a second. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Well, Jerusalem, his mercies never come to an end. Well, captivity. They are new every morning, though, he says, right? This constant refreshment, right? As, as, as surely as the sun dawns every morning, so are the mercies of God. So is the refreshment that we find and the newness that we find in his grace, right? Again, that God should dwell among us, among his people, and bring us grace, not judgment, mercy, not wrath, consolation for those with broken hearts and humble spirits, that he should give a grace that grants forgiveness, forgiveness of sins, that renews hope, that conquers sin, and that triumphs over death. Only grace, my friends, is equal to the task the stalwart soldier that never grows tired and never grows stale or bored, always interested in bringing us to Christ's likeness. This is what God has done for us. And I think the challenge for us is clear in light of grace. We preach grace, yes, but in the long term, we have to ask ourselves, are we building a culture of grace? Is grace alive and well in this local church? Do we understand our calling to build that culture of grace as the body of Christ? Do we see grace here in abundance? Do we see it expressed in patience, in love, in joy, in forgiving one another, in overlooking wrongdoing, 
and giving freely out of what God has graced us with. And then even outside our own community here, are we being a vessel of grace toward our own city? Are we making a difference in Colorado Springs? Can Colorado Springs look at us and say, look at, behold, a people of grace. There's just piles of grace there. I don't understand it, but there's piles of grace. I mean, if we can't say that about ourselves, do we expect Colorado Springs to? So may this be true of us. May we be a people truly of grace that take grace seriously and desire to be a vessel of grace toward others, especially the household of faith. So here we come to the next part. That's grace. Verse 17. And there's more about grace. Wait a minute. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So there's an interesting division here, but one thing I want to say right off the bat is that John is in no sense pitting the law against Jesus. He's not pitting the law against gospel. What I believe he's doing is saying that Jesus Christ is superior. He's saying that one is better. He's not saying the law is bad. He's not saying Moses is bad. He's not saying that the law and Moses are counter, that they are somehow against Jesus or against the gospel. But he's doing it in, he's presenting this in an order of sorts, right? For the law was given through Moses. Great. The law is good. Moses was a, a righteous man. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. A couple things to keep in mind here. Paul tells the Romans, I believe this is chapter 3, we do not nullify the law through faith, rather we establish the law. So make, note that in your mind. By faith in Christ, right, by, by participating in the new covenant, we are upholding the law of God, and that is a good thing. We understand that in Christ, speaking of grace, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we understand that through this, through this separation here, that salvation only comes through grace. Right? By grace, through faith, we see that clarified in Romans eleven six. 6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Okay? So we understand the law is good. 1 Timothy 1 tells us the law is good if one uses it lawfully. We find also that the law is necessary. And we could even go so far as to say this, very important, that the law contained truth. The law was the truth. It was God revealing His standards to His people Israel. So the law is true. I would also say that the law, there, there are gracious provisions in the law. Right? When you see those animal sacrifices, that one can bring to, the bring to the tabernacle and then the temple, lay it, on the, lay it on the altar. That was a gracious provision by a gracious God. So he's not saying that the law knew no grace, but the law had no grace at all. The very fact that God gave the law to, so his people knew what he expected of them, so that they could dwell with him as his holy people, was an immensely gracious act. And so we don't want to minimize that in any sense. But we find some clarifications here. The law is good. The law is a gracious thing to be given. But we find, we find that there are some limitations to it. 
First of all, it could not grant salvation. It could not impart life. So while for the Christian, the law is a way of life, it is not a way to life. And Paul explains this in Galatians 3, 21-22. He asks a question. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Far from it. For if a law had been given that was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the Scripture has confined everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Right? Lots going on here. We don't, want to have, we don't have to unpack this entire passage, but it tells us very clearly that under the Old Covenant system, a law was given, but that law couldn't impart life. Right? So what could impart life? Only God, by grace through faith, can impart life. And then he says, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe, right? How is a person in the Old Testament saved? By believing in the promises of God. Even though the Messiah had not come yet, you were still believing what God had said regarding his definitive future saving work. So there are some limitations. The law could not save. The law could not impart life. But the law does something else that I would say is also a very gracious thing. The law, I think most importantly, points us to the fact that we need a Savior, right? So when the law was given through Moses, that was pointed out. Yes, there was a demand for holiness, right? There was, it was God's holy standard. And if, and if the Israelites failed to abide by that law and rebelled against God, they would be expelled from the land, almost typologically a form of, of spiritual death. But the law pointed to the fact that we need grace, that we need someone to lay his life down for, someone to ultimately atone for sin. So you see, it's not that grace and, grace and peace, grace and truth didn't exist before Christ. And it's not like as if there was no grace given while Israel was under the law. Here's the point. The law, given its limitations as a ministry of death and condemnation, could never fully bring them to bear the full reality of God's grace. Right? Hence, there's, there's the law, and then above it stands the ministry of Christ. His bringing of grace and truth. Remember, the law, here's another limitation. The law was not complete. Right? Something we have to understand. If the law were complete, there would be no, if the Old Testament were complete, there would be no New Testament. But God had more to say, God had more to reveal, and He had more grace and truth to reveal. But the fullness of that would never come through Moses. It would never come through the law itself. Remember, it was a shadow of things to come, but as Paul tells us, the substance belongs to Christ. And so the law was given to Israel so that they may be a holy nation, right? Royal priesthood. But it was to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. And the law itself pointed to the fullness of truth that would only be found in Jesus. Okay. Here's another difference. Kind of going from the lesser to the greater. The law is mentioned, but so is Moses. When we think about Moses' place in Israelite history, he would probably be the greatest one. He would be the one who stood out because the, the law was given to him, and then he gave it to the people. So he was the, not only the great lawgiver, but he was the, Moses was seen as the great redeemer, right? He was the deliverer that God sent to lead Israel out of bondage to the Egyptians. 
So in that sense, he serves as a type of Christ. He looked forward to the ultimate exodus of God's people from the power of sin, from the power of the enemy. So Jesus is the ultimate deliverer. And and the salvation that Moses brought to Israel pointed to an even greater salvation. A salvation won by Jesus through his death and resurrection. The lesser to the greater, right? Don't view these things as a part. You notice the law, the law was given through Moses. It does not say but grace and truth. It just says grace and truth. The fullness of that grace and truth came through Jesus. Listen to 2 Corinthians 3, starting at verse 7. This explains it and kind of gives us more of a, more of a difference in our understanding of Moses and Christ and the law and the gospel. 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 11. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? So the ministry of Moses, that is the law, is fading, but then it talks about the ministry of the Spirit. What's that? That's the new covenant, which does not fade. It will not fade in glory. It will increase, in fact. Listen to verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 3. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. What's the ministry of righteousness? The ministry of the new covenant, of Christ's imputed righteousness to us. Verse 10. For indeed what had glory, in this case, has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. Once again, he's drawing a distinction between the old covenant and the new. The old covenant had glory, but in this case it has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. It does not make the law null and void. However, the glory that the new covenant brings far surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, how much more that which remains is in glory. So there's an interesting comparison here that we can, that we can read alongside with John. We, remember, John talks about us beholding the glory. We have seen His glory, right? When we see the glory of Christ, we see a glory that does not fade with the passing of time. This is the new covenant, the new everlasting covenant, whereas the glory of Moses eventually faded. Remember, he saw the backside of God as God walked by. He beheld the glory, and his face was glowing to the point they had to put some kind of paper bag over it or whatnot because he was scaring people. And yet even that glow faded. Yet the glory that Christ brings does not fade away. Listen to also the gracious provisions, this fullness of grace that Christ brings. Hebrews 10.28 The one who despised Moses' law died without mercy. There is no mercy in the law. There's no grace in the law. The law is the law. Paraphrasing there. Right? The law kills. The law is, the law is, as it were, a ministry of death. The law kills even though it's good, but it upholds God's justice. That's what makes it good. That's what draws our attention. So, of course, that justice has to be satisfied, and that's where the fullness of grace comes in. That's how Christ reveals grace in a way that the law could not. Because he, provo- he, he, he makes great provision for payment of sin. Listen to Hebrews 10.28. Here it is. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. 
And then there's a warning here. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? So far be it from people who confess to be the church of the living God treat the blood of Christ, the blood of the new covenant with such disdain, who treat grace with such hatred. How much greater will that judgment be for those who apostatize from the provisions of the new covenant? But that's it. The law brings death and it could not save. But Christ brings in its fullness grace. Christ brings in its fullness truth. The law points us to the need for a Savior and the gospel gives us the Savior. So we are saying that in verse 17, John's point is that the law was not the substance, right? It was not the fullness. It was not the full reality. It was not the embodiment of grace and truth. That is found in Jesus. One pastor says the law was a witness to grace and truth. Jesus was the fulfillment of it. So he does not contradict Moses, but he surpasses, he supersedes Moses. And we're reminded once again that this grace and truth, the fullness of it, the full realization of it, comes through only Jesus Christ. This word came, or realize, refers to something that has come about and can even signify a change of condition. Important word. It's actually used during Jesus' temptation when Satan says, command this stone to become bread. Peter says we have come to be partakers of divine nature. So there's a change in status, right? There's a change in position here. There's a change in understanding. That we have come now in Christ to partake and be beneficiaries of grace and truth that were previously unknown and unrealized and that the law could never bring as good as it was. And so in this way, speaking of truth, God has revealed this truth to be manifested and known so completely in Christ, right? Jesus is the truth. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the fulfillment and embodiment of all the truth proclaimed and the promises made in Scripture. We'll blaze through this list really quick because it's not just, again, we're not talking about truth in terms of just facts, uninterpreted facts, that Jesus is the truth, that Jesus is fact. There's more to it than that and that he is the substance of the truth of Scripture. Think about in John, right? The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is true temple. He is the true temple. Right? It is through him that we dwell with God and fellowship with him. He is true Israel. Right? Israel was called to be a light to the nations, but failed. Now, as John says in chapter 1, Jesus is that true light that enlightens every man. The substance is found in Him. He is the true Israelite. Even talking about creation, Jesus is the true Adam. Whereas Adam rebelled against God in the garden, it was in another garden that Jesus submitted His will to the Father. Not my own will, but yours be done. And He did not fall into the temptation and deceit of the devil. So on that account, He is the true man. Everything a man should be. And He is that last Adam who is the life-giving Spirit perfectly bearing the image of God, perfectly representing God's person, character, and attributes, and whose chief mission was obeying His Father and seeing the glory of God 
fill the earth. Isn't it amazing that in Christ we had that chief example of fulfilling that mandate that goes all the way back in creation? Right? To exercise dominion, to subdue the earth and fill it so that, the, so that the earth would be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And in Christ, under His banner, under His Lordship, we are now carrying that out. And finally, He is the true Lamb. We have to mention that. All those sacrifices mentioned in the Old Testament to provide atonement. Christ comes and puts an end to it all by being the true Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So in that sense, grace and truth were fully realized through Jesus Christ. Last part of this. Look at verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. So the first thing, no one has seen God at any time. That is to say, no one has seen the Father. We understand that throughout the Old Testament, there were um, peculiar and unique appearances of God, which I would say are pre-incarnate manifestations of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it does say here, no one has seen seen God at any time. Remember what the Lord told Moses, no one can see my face and live. He He meant that. No one has seen Him at any time. No one has seen the Father. But Jesus has. Jesus has. It says this, The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. So let's look at that last part of the, of the verse here. The only begotten God. Same word, monogamous, speaking to Christ's uniqueness, right? His incomparable, incomparability. He is the only begotten God. God who is in the bosom of the Father. So this word, this word bosom signifies the, the intimacy of the relationship that the Son um, enjoys with the Father throughout all eternity. As uh, MacArthur explained, I thought this was a good explanation. He says it's talking about the fact that He bears the same nature and possesses all the inheritance, all the goodness, all the greatness, and all the gifts and all the possessions that belong to His Father. So the one who is called the monogamous God, the one who is in the bosom of the Father, the one who is wrapped up in the Father. I think this speaks of the oneness, right? Points us to the triune nature of God. That they are united, right? United in, in purpose especially of their saving work. So it, so it takes someone with this kind of access, right? Not just any kind of access. Divine access. Closeness. Oneness. Intimacy a common life, a common eternality to fully understand and then explain the Father. So it says this of Jesus. He is the one uniquely who has explained Him. It's a familiar word that if you come across, if you do a lot of Bible study, is this word exegete. That's where we get this from. The word exegesis. To draw out, right? An attempt to, to garner the meaning of a particular passage or verse at hand. It can mean also to relate, to unfold, to make something fully known. And that's what Christ does. He makes the Father fully known. So Christ becomes this better mediator, right? Moses was a mediator. He was a good mediator. He gave the law. But Christ becomes the the superior, the ultimate mediator. The one through whom we can know the Father personally, more comprehensively, more fully, and more gloriously than we would have ever imagined 
possible. So that when we see Jesus, we see the Father. So that when we understand Jesus, we, be- we understand the Father. When we believe Jesus, we believe the Father. Listen to what Jesus tells Philip, right? Remember, Philip was kind of confused about this very thing. He says, when are you going to show us the Father? It's like there was an anticipation there. I kind of wonder where he picked that up from. But he said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. I mean, talk about the understatement of the New Testament. Show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. Well, you think, <laughs> yeah, that'd be enough. that would be enough for anyone to be shown the Father. Might just drop dead over it. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who Look at the grace here. <laughs> he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So don't miss it. I mean, this warns us against seeking outside further revelation apart from Jesus Christ. When we see Christ, we see a sufficient revelation. Right? But there's nothing, this goes back to the original point made. But there's nothing lacking in what Christ has revealed concerning the Father. So we're not to go out and seek some, some revelation apart from what Scripture has revealed, from what Jesus Himself has revealed. We don't have to go and seek certain experiences and visions and so say, it is finally enough. Jesus tells us right here, if we've seen Him, we have seen the Father. And then He asks this in verse, verse 10 in this chapter, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in Me? This goes back to the only begotten God in the bosom of the Father. Do you believe that Jesus and the Father are one? That they are united in essence and purpose and life and character? Do you not believe that? Because if you believe that, then you will believe that if you have seen Jesus, then you have seen the Father and that Jesus is not holding back. He's revealing everything that the Father has purposed to show us regarding Himself. Jesus closes with this, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His work. So notice the chain of preaching here, right? Jesus is one with the Father. Right? Jesus understands the Father. So He explains, so, so, so Jesus explains the Father, right? Then we see John the Baptist giving that testimony. John the Baptist explains Jesus. And so we also, as the church, explain Jesus. Because as we explain Jesus, we explain the Father. We explain everything that men need to know regarding God and His purposes for His creation. So when we preach the Gospel as a church, and I hope this helps us today sort of renew our purpose and to think of and to think very strongly about what the purpose of the church is what are we all about what is our what are, what are our obligations to society what is our mission in this world are we truly and faithfully carrying out the father's purposes right? and the responsibilities and calling that he has given us it all goes back to revelation we are called to reveal something and so the question is, are we making it personal? Are we making it personal that, that through the Gospel, through the preaching of the cross, and when it is believed, God comes to dwell with His people? Is it powerful? Are we regarding the Gospel as something that is life-changing? Not just one of many messages. 
but one that can bring death to life and salvation to sinners? Is it prophetic? Are we like John, forsaking all other things that we could talk about? Are we proclaiming Christ? Are we saying, this is the one. This one right here is the one I was telling you about. Right. When there's a temp- in the face of a temptation to, to focus on so many other things, do we proclaim Christ? Is our revelation prophetic? And then, of course, finally, is our revelation, is what is being revealed perfect? Are we preaching half a gospel, right? Are we preaching a gospel to where we are adding things? And if we're doing either of those things, that is no gospel at all, right? Jesus will tolerate no competitors, right? The work of salvation is done through His power. So in a sense of preaching a a perfect gospel, are we Are we preaching a gospel that saves, right? Are we declaring that salvation is found in no one else? Are we telling people, are we commanding people to repent or perish? Are we telling them to cling to and embrace Christ alone and trust in Him alone and no other? Are we, as John explains here, are we explaining Christ? Christ explains the Father, but are we faithful to explain Christ? Christ. And I certainly hope we are. But this passage says so much about our joyous calling and whose name we speak forth, what our greatest priorities are as a church, and how we can bring the hope of the gospel to this world and truly be a light unto the nation. So I definitely pray and hope that that is the case for Emmaus Road. Definitely want that to be, and I hope you do as well. But it starts with Jesus. It starts with this one, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your love and goodness to us. Pray that uh, you would help us to see Jesus, the ultimate, final, complete expression of who you are, of your will, of your saving, of your saving work, of your desire to, to dwell with, with us, to make an enemy a friend, to make sinners righteous, to make the lost found, to make the dead alive. Um, Lord, as we go forth and proclaim Your Word, that it would be all of these things, that it would be a personal, powerful, prophetic, and perfect message, that we would not compromise or hold back because we are ashamed of the Gospel, but may we be emboldened by it and uh, be faithful to that end. Lord, we desire You to work among us, to sanctify us, to perfect us, to make us Christ-like, to give us opportunities to, to reach one another, but also to reach our surrounding community. We know that there are many in Colorado Springs who, who need to hear the good news, many who haven't, and even many who have and still reject it, despite there being so many churches in town. Lord, we know that the work is not yet finished. I pray that we would not sit back on our laurels to rest easy, to think that the job is done. But Lord, to know that through the finished work of Your Son, we can proclaim the fullness of truth and grace and call men to believe. And what a sacred task that is that, that You would call 
those who were formerly dead in trespasses and sin to make your name known. Um, so may we do no less. And uh, we recognize that this is all of grace. If there's one thing we want to learn today, it's that it is all of grace. That it is because you have given us abundantly. You've given us, as you say, the fullness of grace and truth. And uh, Lord, we understand that that is given in the person of Christ. So may we treasure him, may we love him, and may we praise him. May that be our, uh, may be our greatest prize. We ask all this in his name. Amen.